Welcome to the first episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry and today we'll be talking about the 1999 film The Mummy directed by Stephen Summers and starring Brandon Fraser, Arnold Vosloo, John Hanna and Rachel Weisz. The film was terrifying when I first watched it. Granted, I was only 10 years old, but I had such a connection with this film because it wasn't something I could really fathom. It wasn't scary. It was it was funny as well. And it wouldn't stick to one genre. And it was advertised as being a horror movie. And every time I saw the trailer come up when I was a kid, um, I think it was on Sky Movies, it was advertised as a horror and, um, you know, of something on par with The Exorcist or Silence of the Lambs. And I was really concerned about watching it. And luckily, my parents sat down with me to watch it. And there were parts of the movie that made me laugh. And the more and more I got older, the film transformed more into a classic Spielberg movie on par with Indiana Jones, which I believe this film somewhat resonates in parts. And I believe the more and more you watch a film that you first watch at such a vulnerable age, the more you discover about what you like and how films have an impact on you. The 1999 film version of The Mummy was a stretched remake of the 1932 film starring Boris Karloff, who played The Mummy. And he actually played Frankenstein the same year. And the year before that, um, I think it was Bela Lugosi, who was this Hungarian actor. He played Dracula. So Universal were playing a lot with monster movies in the 30s. And I think Universal, I think they said that they were intending to make um, what basically Avengers Endgame became, which was this lead up to all the monsters to cross linking movies and end up battling each other in an Endgame-esque movie. So this idea of interconnecting big fictional characters existed way before Stan Lee or even before Marvel or Disney were on the scenes of this universe. Now, because of the success of um, what Marvel and Disney achieved with the, the Marvel Universe, they tried reviving the idea in 2017. And, you know, they remade The Mummy with Tom Cruise, and this was meant to be the Iron Man of this new dark universe that Universal were trying to do. But ultimately, they didn't do so well at the box office. It had a £125 million budget, and it grossed roughly £410 million, which sounds a lot. But they expected a much bigger return after coming off the reputation of the 1999 film. And the 1999 film, which had a budget of £80 million, went on to make over 430 million and become it became you know a really loved movie and it kick-started Rachel Weisz's career so it was a disappointment that this dark universe won't happen and they tried a poster before the 2017 movie came out to urge people to get excited about this new universe and they already had Johnny Depp as the invisible man Javier Bardem as the wolfman of course Russell Crowe playing Dr Jekyll obviously Tom Cruise as the mummy and Sophia Batella as Amanet and not even that poster could really rescue the box office failure of the mummy for me, what makes The Mummy as a story quite interesting is that it wasn't based on a novel like Dracula or Frankenstein or a comic book like Batman or Spider-Man. It was inspired by the real-life opening of something that actually happened in the world, and it was the real-life opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. And the, the evidence speaks for itself. I mean, 11 years later, there's a movie about The Mummy, and because of this, people started to become fascinated with the mythology of ancient Egypt. And henceforth, the movie The Mummy came out and people were going crazy about the aspects of ancient Egypt and the mythology and ancient curses and tombs and, of course, mummies. Now, with the 1999 version, they went in a totally new direction, but staying true to some aspects from the original, like the name of the mummy, which was Imhotep. Now, in both the remake and original, he was a high priest who rises from the dead. In both movies, the mummy is, in fact, referring to Imhotep, even though technically 
in the 1999 version, and I think in the 1932 version, he, he, uh, version, he doesn't get mummified. So all his pharaohs do and his servants do, but he suffers the hom die, which is by far the worst, as we later discover in the 1999 film. So really, Imhotep doesn't get mummified, hence he's not really a mummy, but they are paying tribute by using his name from the 1932 movie. What is more curious is the name actually is from an Egyptian architect who apparently was said to design the pyramids or had designed the pyramids, and he wasn't executed or mummified or even suffered the hom die. It was quite the opposite. He was made a god after his death. And to this day, he is believed to be the only one, the only Egyptian, in fact, to have that honor. So Stephen Sommers is quite subtle in the way he uses the character Imhotep because it's respectful in his desire um, for the end goal, which is to be with the Pharaoh's daughter, who is um, Anaxunamun, and he's in love with her. And that is the premise for the whole movie, and Summers stays true to it. And movies don't do it so often, but sometimes to enjoy a good movie, and if it's done well in a battle between good and evil, you want to somewhat relate to the desire or aim of the villain's conquest during the film. And you want to show a little sympathy for the villain because Arnold Vaslu's character, Imhotep, is in love, and all he wants to do is be with Anaxunamun. And I think Arnold Vosloo, who plays Imhotep, mentioned that he wanted to be the guy to just be, you know, a man in love who will do anything to achieve that, referencing Romeo and Juliet as inspiration for the desire. And he'll go through the ends of the earth to make sure that he is once reunited with Anaxunamun. And this is what shapes the movie and, in fact, opens the movie in a nutshell in a very intense and eerie introduction narrated by Ardef Bay. Interestingly enough, though, um, Ardef Bay wasn't meant to narrate the opening scene in the screenplay. It was meant to be Imhotep, played by Arnold Vasley, but then they later realized that he wouldn't be able to speak English. So the narration rightfully went to Ardef's character, which was quite fitting, seeing his role of the movie as protector of this creature, as they put it, and leader of the Magi's. What's interesting is that Ardef Bay in the 1932 film is actually a alter ego for the mummy because the mummy in the 1932 movie played by Boris Karloff actually gets resurrected quite early on and they assumes the identity of someone called Ardef Bay in Egypt. Now in the Stephen Sommers movie he's a totally separate character and he's the leader of the Magi's played by Odef Fair which is this, this Israeli Brad Pitt. So it's another nod to the original movie in a very subtle way by Stephen Sommers. Stephen Sommers wasn't your typical well-known director when this film came out. The studio gave him the trust to do this film after asking other directors to do this, but some of the directors were just asking for a higher budget than $80 million, which ended up being the budget for The Mummy. And bear in mind that Universal were pitching this idea of The Mummy movie after films like Independence Day had just come out and other disaster movies and end-of-the-world movies were coming out and performing really well at the box office with such big budgets. And it was this period where studios were financing end-of-the-world and disaster movies because of this Y2K trend that was happening. And the millennium was fast approaching, which is why people were flooding in to see these films because they generally thought something bad was going to happen. And it was this really exciting trend that was happening that when we hit the millennium, something disastrous was going to happen. So we had all these disaster movies in the 90s come in, like Independence Day, Starship Troopers, Volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon... Deep Impact and of course The Mummy coming out a year before the millennium and Steve did such a good job with this movie of 80 million and some directors just naturally do a better job with smaller budgets I think Danny Boyle is a really good example of that his best films are the lower budget ones like Train Spotting and Slumdog Millionaire which definitely trumps his film his really bigger films like The Beach or Sunshine 
So Stephen started doing adaptations of famous novels like Huckleberry Finn, which was a, a Mark Twain novel, and then uh, which starred a young Elijah Wood. And then he went on to do another adaptation of a novel by Rudyard Kipling called The Jungle Book, as we all know. And that starred a really young Lena Headey before she became massively famous in uh, Game of Thrones. And it wasn't until he wrote and directed his own movie called Deep Rising that he got some attention from the studios. And it was this really, really bad but really enjoyable B movie that was like a sequel for Big Trouble Little China, or it should have been. And it was just really good fun. And you can really see the parallels from this movie to The Mummy. So you can you could see that Stephen Sommers was had a style, much like how we know Tarantino has his style. Now in Deep Rising, he brings one of his actors uh, from um, from Deep Rising to The Mummy, which was Kevin J. O'Connor, who plays Benny in The Mummy. Uh, much like how Tarantino always uses Samuel L. Jackson or Christopher Nolan always uses Michael Caine. We have this establishment now that Stephen Summers is going to be using this guy, Kevin J. O'Connor. So he casted him. So Kevin J. Kevin J. O'Connor plays Benny. He's like this proper weasel of the film. But the thing that makes this almost comical relief in the mo movie more interesting is that you kind of like him. You laugh at his jokes. And Summers does this so well with every single character that has a semi-main role in this movie. And as I said before, he does this with Imhotep, and he's the main antagonist. So he invites the audience to have some degree of empathy for every single character, including the villain. And this is something that he does so well, and I think he's really strong at doing with his characters. Now, obviously, with Rick and Evie and Jonathan and Ardef, we know that they're the good guys, they're the heroes, so it doesn't take much development for us to like them as an audience. But with a prop character like the weasel of the film, or the right hand of the devil, as he puts it in the movie, it's very rare that you want to see this character in a sequel or survive or you just have mixed feelings for his agenda now if you look at characteristic uh, characteristic weasels in films like uh, i don't know green mile you have percy and you have the late bill paxton as simon in true lies and the duke in moulin rouge or Wormtail in the prisoner of azkaban or cow in titanic you don't want to see these characters succeed you don't like them they're very weasley you don't want these slimy characters to have anything to do with the agenda of the hero but what summer does is to introduce a conflict of interest when you get introduced to these characters and with benny you almost see the regret in his decision to side with imhotep you can see that rick still has a soft spot for him after he confides with him on the ship about why he's really going back to Harmanutra. And he even tries to save him at the end of the movie. And you see hints of his dilemma when he curses Imhotep behind his back when he's like, ah, the whole wall trick, uh, yeah, you bastard. And he even shows willingness to listen to Evie, who first corrects him when she says, all eternity, you idiot. And it's, so one it's some really wonderful acting by Kevin J. O'Connor because it's for like two seconds. He just puts his head down in that scene and he's like, Ah, okay, yes, I made a mistake. Okay, fair enough. And he's like, yeah, I'm wrong. And even later when they're at Hamanaptra, he even tells him, nasty young men like yourself will always get to their comeuppance. And he laughs. But then he swiftly says, they do. And it's such a conflict of interest in him because he wants to do the right thing. And Summers, I think, introduces him as a weasel. But in fact, he's just like a rat. He's a survivor. And that's all he wants to do from, you know, closing the door on Rick to begging in five languages to Imhotep. He's a very interesting character, and I think that's all down to the direction of Stephen Sommers. So I think that character is really interesting. Now, with Rick, we have this all-American hero at first glance, even though Brendan Fraser is Canadian, and even though when we first see Rick, he's fighting the French Foreign Legion. So already we know he has an agenda with America, or we assume he does. He's in Egypt fighting with the French, and he's somehow a commissioner, which I don't think the French Foreign Legion would ever allow, but it gives a quite a good picture of who Rick is. 
He's heroic, uh, a leader figure, a drifter, well-traveled. And even when at the beginning the enemy is about to shoot him, he just closes his eyes. So you know he'll do whatever it takes and he accepts his fate in the path that he's chosen. Now, Brendan Fraser was chosen after his success with George of the Jungle in 1997. And Summers was looking for this kind of Errol Flynn style role for Rick. Someone who didn't take the, th- uh, the role too seriously for Rick O'Connell. And Brendan had this charm to pull off this kind of John McClane-esque humor roll off. Some would say this was sort of the height of his career, as this is probably what people remember him from, which is sad because the potential is clearly there. Of course, he still squeezed a few great roles in, you know, in roles in Harold Ramis's Bedazzled, playing alongside Michael Caine in The Quiet Man, and having a small role in the Oscar-winning film Crash. Funnily enough, though, the studio wanted Leonardo DiCaprio for the role, but he was actually shooting the beach at the time. And Leo even read the script for The Mummy and really wanted to do it, and he really wanted to commit to it, but he, he couldn't because of the schedule of the beach. So Summers convinced the studio on Fraser, and funnily enough, the beach was delayed in Thailand because of a tropical storm which destroyed all the sets. So in hindsight, Leo would have been able to accept it without any scheduling conflict with the beach whatsoever. So it would have been a very different movie, and I think the world may not have known who Brendan Fraser was. Obviously, this heroic charm of Brendan is shown more visually when he is juxtaposed with Benny, who runs away when he realizes the odds are against him. So it enhances our view that Rick is the genuine hero. And I really don't think it's by accident that his name is Rick, because Humphrey Bogart's character is called Rick in Casablanca, which, exa- which has exactly the same backdrop of Morocco. So it emphasizes the fact that this is the hero, and this is who we're going to hide behind for the next two hours. And before you say anything, this film was shot in Morocco, not Egypt, because in the, at the time, in 1998, when they were shooting it there were some real political problems in Egypt so Morocco sort of came in as the standby which I thought was very fitting considering Summers was aiming to give this sort of nostalgia towards films in that era like Casablanca but Morocco did come with its challenges as well as security was constantly a hand on the set because of serious robbery issues in the country and it got to the point where the Moroccan military was at standby when shooting scenes in more populated areas of Morocco now, talking about juxtaposition, Rick finally is partnered with his future wife, Evie, who's played by the wonderful Rachel Weisz, who, after this film, is is and has had a very successful career with one of the standout roles, I think, was in The Constant Gardener, which is where she landed her first Oscar. And I think she actually got nominated last year for The Favourite, which is a really good film if you haven't seen it as well. And... What she sort of brings to the mummy is she's the anchor of this whole journey. She's this innocent woman who's obsessed with ancient Egypt, who is basically stranded in Egypt, working in a library, learning all she can about the history of Egypt after her parents had died, leaving her and Jonathan alone. And when we first get introduced to her in the library, putting books away, it's an interesting opening, almost metaphorical, as we see her putting books back in the right place on top of a ladder. And from the offset, we know that she's quite knowledgeable, she knows that she's always doing the right thing, and, you know, she does so without hesitations as she finds herself on top of a ladder about to fall off. So this sort of metaphorical opening of Rachel Weisz sort of explains, you know, she's always willing to do the right thing, and it's shown so cleverly by Stephen Summers by simply just putting a book in its right place. Obviously, with that scene with the bookcases where Evie eventually falls over, knocking down all the bookshelves like dominoes, had to be done in one shot, otherwise it would have taken all day to reset that shot. And it's quite a symbolic representation of Evie's character where at this point on where all the books have fallen over, it just sort of shows that now the books are on the ground and the reading is done, the theory is over and done with, and now she'll be going out to the field. So it's quite a clever, subtle nod to her fate for the rest of the movie. 
And the great thing about Evie is she's the anchor, like I mentioned before. So it's her job to lead and to guide. And this is done so well by the costume designers of the movie. She's very flexible. And I guess I guess the word I'm looking for is she's she's adaptable with her outfits. When she's a librarian, she dresses like a librarian. And when she's in the desert, she wears a, nacra- a nacab. Rick even steals her some tools, which further emphasizes her character as the adaptable one. She's not a woman who is showing cleavage or trying to be sexy. She's basically there to lead. And Stephen Summers does this so well with Rachel Weiss in the costume department. Of course, when it comes to Rick or Ardeff or Jonathan, in fact, any of the characters in the movie, their costume hardly changes. But Evie is the only one who changes basically in every scene. And she even makes a funny, subtle comment about it when the ferry burns down. She goes, oh, my clothes. So I think Stephen Summers knows really what he's doing here. And he's very good at developing a strong female character. And he does this so well with Evie. Now, with Jonathan, played by the wonderful John Hanna, who you probably know from the Spartacus series with Lucy Lawless or Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, he brings a real depth to the character, and I believe he is so misinterpreted in this movie. And what I like about Summers, like I've said with all the other characters, is this guy is a thief, a liar, a gambler, a little bit of a joker, and not one part of his negative traits is used in a negative way. So it's so pure and refreshing. And like I said... Summers does this in a subtle way. He has a subtlety to each of his characters. You love this character and you never really exploit his bad traits in this movie. Or you you make his bad traits in a you don't exploit it in a really damaging way. In fact, they're almost used in a in the opposite way, in an almost a comical way to enhance the movie, to enhance the you know the narrative of the the story. Like him stealing the key numerous times, and he's also kind of there for Evie as a support line because he's the older brother, and she's obviously succeeded in life, and all she cares about is getting to Benbridge Scholars, and all he cares about is you know the next day. And he, you have to understand as well, which I think is where the misinterpretation comes from, that is they have the same parents. So you have to assume Jonathan has a bit of knowledge in ancient Egypt as well. And that's really what I mean by audience and audience thinking he might be stupid or dumb. He just doesn't care. And Stephen Summers once again creates his character in a very, you know, a very powerful way. And you have hints of his knowledge with the lines like... Uh, Ah, yes, I see. When Evie finally tells him it's a manifest. So you're aware he's aware. You're aware he's got a knowledge of reading ancient Egyptian. So he can do it. And he knows what Hamanuptra is when his eyes widen when Evie mentions it. So, again, it's the subtlety of what Summers does with these characters, which creates such an intriguing film. And I believe this film, The Mummy, will and probably has last the ages. I mean, it's been 21 years since this film came out, and it's still one of my favorite movies. I can watch it over and over again. And uh, I, I just think it's just a, a beautiful piece of cinema done by Stephen Summers. But this is my first episode, and I just want to thank you for listening for um, The Mummy. And if you haven't seen the film, then I hope this has helped you persuade to seek it. You know, I've helped you. I've persuaded you to... Go seek it out on Blu-ray or DVD or to, or to find it on a streaming network. So thank you very much. This is Ash Hurry with Film Exploration. <laughs>